Good morning. Good to see you all this morning. If you look at your bulletin, again, the offering envelopes in the offering box, obviously, Andrea's number. Days of Praise booklets are uh, here in the, in the lobby for uh, May, I believe, and also Acts and Facts. We've got one here, so it looks like that. If you haven't got that one, you can pick one up. That would be great. Anything that, uh, yeah. Uh, cool. I just wanted to mention, I, I did go pick up the baby bottles. The oh. Pregnancy Center baby bottle campaign will start you know, on Mother's yeah. Day usually. Um, I have them in the car. I'll have to bring them in. They'll be available next Sunday if you want them or okay. you can start the next Sunday. Yeah. I think the Mother's Day is the 7th or no, the 9th or something like that of May. But um, I don't know if people have a lot of change because of the big change. Shortage. <laughs> <I> <laughs> but if you want to put a $20 know. bill in there, you can do that too. Do you know what the average is? Uh, of a, of a, a bottle baby? is usually, if it's just not all pennies, yeah. it can be between 18 and 20 Okay. Something like that. Yeah. All right, thanks. And something else. I yes. found out that the pregnancy center has paid off their building. Wow. Um, I had no idea. He was a, a volunteer doing their books for a while, and he set up a plan for them, you know, and the amortization and so forth, and yeah. they got it paid off, I think, That's so great news. Yeah, yeah, thank you. So that was a great phrase. I yeah, amen. Thrilled yeah, <laughs> I'm sure. That. I'm sure. Yeah. We would we would all like to be mortgage free, wouldn't yeah. we? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Dale, did I see your hand there? Yes. Um, Chris Wolf, the guy that's interested in the four acres out in the, out in the back of the property, there's a possibility that um, I gave him a blueprint. Yeah. I'm just, I'm just announcing that that's a, it's a possibility. Okay. And to me, it sounds pretty good. Yeah. Great. So he would like to build our portico for for the acreage. Yes. It's just a swap. Hopefully. Yeah. <laughs> All we need to pray about. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Thanks, Dale. Our scripture for meditation this morning is taken from Hebrews. The 11th chapter, read verses 8 through 16, 
Let's stand together this morning and ask the Lord to be with us. Bill, would you ask the Lord this morning? You take your red hymnal this morning and turn to number 310, 310 in the red.
favorite hymn this morning. Don't everybody raise your hand. Oh, Sheila, thank you. <laughs> I remembered the song that I forgot. <laughs> yes. Four ninety in the brown. Okay, four nine zero in the brown. And the words. Okay.
Our scripture reading this morning is found in Genesis, the 11th chapter, and we'll be reading 24 through 32, page 16 in the Pew Bible. Genesis 11, 24 through 32, and that's on page 16 in the Pew Bible. When Nahor had lived 29 years, he fathered Terah. And Nahor lived after he fathered Terah 119 years and had other sons and daughters. When Terah had lived 70 years, he fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Now these are the generations of Terah. Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran, and Haran fathered Lot. Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his kindred in Ur of the Chaldeans. And Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife, Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah, and Iscah. Now Sarai was barren, she had no child. Terah took Abram his son, and Lot the son of Haran his grandson, and Sarai his daughter-in-law, his son's son Abram's wife. And they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. The days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. You take your brown hymnal once more and turn to number 10. 10 in the brown. Thank you. 
our scripture text is found in Genesis 11. Today we begin a new series entitled The Patriarchs. Story of the patriarch, Abraham, known as Abram earlier. Abram means exalted father. Later his name was changed to Abraham, the father of multitudes. His wife Sarai, meaning princess, was her name was changed to Sarah, meaning noble. Now it's important to know that neither of these two people were from any kind of a royal line by birth. Yet you have these kind of royal titles. They were just a married couple whose lives revolved around reading, uh, rather raising livestock, principally sheep. Moving from one grazing pasture to another, that's what they did back in those days. They lived at the period of time directly after the Tower of Babel, wherein mankind, after the flood, refused to disperse out the earth as God had commanded under the leadership of a man named Nimrod they attempted to build a tower the ziggurats that you studied in history atop of which they inlaid stone depicting the zodiac verse 4 city with a tower that reaches to the heavens. Literally, the Hebrew here says, whose tower, whose top is the heavens. So that we may make a name for our and be scattered over the face of the whole earth. So you see their intent. It's kind of fist in the face of God. You want us to disperse? We're not going to disperse. Genesis 11, verse 4. By the way, no one would build a tower in the plain of Shinar, verse 2, the lands, if the goal was to reach high into the heavens to avoid the catastrophe of another flood. That just doesn't make sense. But that's one of the interpretations. Well, they're going to build a tower so high that if another flood comes, they'll be safe. But it makes perfect sense if this tower has, was to become a worship center. Many people of that day, Egyptians, Persians, to name a couple, worshiped the sun, the moon, and the stars. But it was part and parcel to rejecting God and resisting his command to repopulate the earth after the great flood. We're not going to do it. We're going to stay right here. That's what they were saying. Now, these idolaters had one thing going for them in their defiance of God. Verse 1. Now, the whole world had one language and a common speech. Think about that. 
Unification demands common communication. I think one of the barriers that exists even today in our own country is the large Hispanic and Arabic populations that do not speak English. They're mixed in with our English-speaking culture, which, by the way, to speak English is required for citizenship. So this is a struggle for these people. So here in the plain of Shinar, we have all these descendants of Noah's three sons, Shem, Ham, Japheth, chapter 10, verse 1, numbering into the thousands. They all speak the same language. They all understand each other just quite well. There's no language barrier whatsoever. And so the city and the tower was designed to make a name for themselves, verse 4. That's what they're up to. We're going to make a name for ourselves. And to provide a cohesive environment for unification and solidarity in protest to God's command to disperse. We're not going to disperse. We're together. We're going to stay right here. And they plan to proceed on schedule with no strengths, no restraints. So everyone was agreed to the building project, committed to establishing their own religion of idolatry, convinced that they could defy God and pull it off. Boy, if that isn't the pride of man, I don't know what is. That they can defy God and pull it off. Nothing's changed much through the centuries, has it? But it's not so easy to defy God and get away with it. The scripture says, Many are the plans of a man's heart, but it is the Lord's purpose that prevails. Proverbs 19, verse 21. Or in our text, look at verse 6 and following. The Lord said, If as one people speaking the same language... They have begun to do this. Then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us. Notice the triune God is speaking here. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so that they will not understand each other. So the Lord scattered them from there over all the earth and they stopped building the city. That's why it was called Babel. Because there the Lord confused the language of the whole world. From there the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. Genesis 11, verse 6 through 9. What is this about? Well, it's the basis for unification was destroyed. The population went from speaking one language to speaking many languages. So they migrated throughout the earth according to their dialects, according to their languages. Obviously, within their language groups, yes, they could and they did establish the various cultures that we have through our world today, the Chinese, the Japanese, the Russian, the Great British, Great Britain, Hispanic, and so on, and so on, and so on. But the point here is that God got his way. God got his way. 
the plans of the people to build one state religion, one language group was frustrated by God and these idolaters were forced to comply with God's command however reluctantly that was to them. It's to this juncture that we bring in the subject of Abraham and Sarah. God turned his attention away from the nations plural in general to one people group. There's a Hebrew literary device found here which I think is worth noting and it's this. Every time Moses intends to change direction in what he is relating he uses the Hebrew word toledoth meaning account or generation term is used 11 times all total in each in, and in each incident it becomes a title for what's to follow for example Genesis 2 verse 4 we read this is the account the Toledoth of the heavens and the earth when they were created when the Lord God made the earth and the heavens and what follows as you know, is a description of the early years of the planet's history, creation of Adam and Eve, the fall into sin, and so forth. Toledoth. Chapter 5, verse 1, this is the written Toledoth, the written account of Adam's line, and then it's given. Chapter 6, verse 9, this is the Toledoth, the account of Noah, and then his genealogy is given. Chapter 10, verse 1. This is the account, Toledoth, of Shem, Ham, and Japheth, Noah's three sons, and so on and so on. Now look at our text, verse 10. This is the account, the Toledoth, of Shem. Who was Shem? Well, he was the godly seed which replaced Abel, whom Cain killed, you remember. And verse 27 says, this is the account of Terah the Toledoth. So this expression, the account of, while copiously found in these earlier parts of Genesis, will not appear again for 14 more chapters. Not until chapter 25 of Genesis and verse 12 does it appear again. This is the account of Abraham's son, Ishmael. In verse 25, this is the account of Abraham's son, Isaac. You say, so what? What all this indicates, I don't understand. Well, this indicates that the use of Toledoth, this is the account of Terah, and so on and so on. Verse 27, introduces a lengthy section of Genesis which incorporates Abraham and his descendants alone, which indicate that God has turned his attention away from the nations, plural, in general, to a new spiritual world in the line of one man named Abraham. Now, it doesn't mean the other nations aren't going to be around, but it means God is going to start dealing with one nation 
one person, one family, neighbor Abraham. By the way, he did this previously in the great flood of Noah's day. We read, the Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become, and that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. Boy, what a statement. Lord was grieved that he had made man on the earth, and his heart was filled with pain. So the Lord said, I will wipe mankind whom I have created from the face of the earth. Men and animals, creatures that move along the ground, and birds in the air, for I am grieved that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Genesis 6, verses 5 through 8. The flood reset, if you put it that way, the flood reset the clock on humanity by starting over with a new head of the human race, Noah, of whom we just read, he found favor in the eyes of the Lord, Genesis 6, verse 8. But after the flood, we read Genesis 10, verse 32. These are the clans of Noah's sons according to their lines of descent within their nations. From these, the nations spread out over the face, over the earth after the flood. But according to verse 1 of our text, they didn't spread out very far. And what is more, they reverted to their old wicked ways of replacing God with idolatry. Uh-oh, something's going on. God promised Noah, I establish my covenant with you. Never again will all of life be cut off by the waters of a flood. Never again will there be a flood to destroy the earth. I will remember my covenant between me and you and all living creatures of every kind. Never again will the waters become a flood to destroy all life. Genesis 9, verse 11, verse 15. Okay, but here we are. In Genesis chapter 11, the people have degenerated once again into gross idolatry. They've built a tower in defiance of worshiping God alone. God had to disperse them by confounding their common language. So it appears that the nations are destined for an ongoing defiance of God and subsequent judgment by God. What then does God do? He opens another chapter in human history, the calling out and establishment of his people, beginning with Abraham and Sarah. He determines, as he said in the pre-flood people of the earth, my spirit will not contend with man forever. Genesis 6, verse 3. Now the world might be happy about that. Oh, good. <laughs> God is about time he left me alone. I want to be alone. I want him out of my life. I don't care to have God running my life. But let me tell you, this is very, very serious. Very serious. It's a mark of God's curse if he abandons you to your own devices. Romans 1 verse 24, Therefore God gave them over, writes Paul, in the sinful desires of their heart 
You want a sinful lifestyle and a sinful heart? Okay. Have at it, God says. Boyce, Dr. Boyce, puts it very cogently. He says, they would not have God. So God would not have them. Wow. That's simple. Short. To the point. He can't do that. God loves everybody, right? <laughs> no. Not right. This is very, very serious. It is a mark of God's curse if he abandons you to your own devices. Boyce goes on to suggest when God gives the nations over or up, as the King James Version says, we're not to suppose that he gives them over to nothing, as if they just float away on their own and do perfectly well without him. On the contrary, when God gives nations or individuals up, he gives them up to the lawless laws of his own spiritual universe and this means that apart from a grounding in him and the truths revealed in religion their course will always be downhill that doesn't sound like up to me and as a text on this it's Romans 1 verse 24 the downhill spiral began with sexual immorality. It ended with a depraved mind that could approve of nothing but wickedness and evil. Romans 1 verse 32, God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death. That's not improvement, is it? That doesn't look like a plus to me. This holds true for our texts and the apostasy of the nations in rejecting God. Understand here that the rebellion at Babel is a description of people on the end of the downhill spiral. We have been led to believe that mankind starts out in superstition with multiple gods and animism. Animism is the belief that spirits are to be found in inanimate objects this pulpit, like your pews, they're, they're found everywhere. And then man evolved into polytheism, many gods. Finally into monotheism, one god. That's what we're taught. But this is all patently false. In actuality, it's the direct opposite. Adam and Eve began their spiritual understanding monotheistic, one God, their creator, God. And it's only after sin entered the world that degeneration in the concepts of God occurred. So that said, monotheism is the basic or ground form of religion. And polytheism is a later and degenerate form expressing itself 
in the idolatry that devolved, and the end product is a corruption of God. To put it this way, the nation which rejects God does not advance upward. It degenerates downward to such a degree, our text puts it out, they become builders at Babylon. The only hope for humanity is if God steps in by his grace and restarts them moving upward again by his grace. Mankind says, I want God out of my life. I just want him to leave me alone. Well, left to yourself, which way are you going to go? You're going to go down. There's not going to be an improvement in your life. It's going to bring sorrow and pain and suffering and regrets and being lost. So Abraham and Sarah were God's, I can put it this way, he was their restart button. Adam, Eve, not too great. <laughs> well, we got to restart. How, how are we going to turn this around? Abraham and Sarah. Adam and Eve messed up, as you know. Their prime position as the parents of the race. Sin entered the world, death by sin through their disobedience. Romans 5, verse 12. Noah is the new head of the race after the flood. He didn't fare any better. Canaanites were descendants of Noah's grandson. They became the wicked people who populated Palestine throughout Israel's Old Testament sojourn. Think about that. All that immorality and corruption and paganism. So what did God do? Well, it wasn't exactly that he had someone righteous to work with. I mean, not even Abram, whose father, Terah, was a practicing idolater, just like all the other pagans living around him. And Abraham was taught this false religion, too. Joshua tells us that. He reminds us the nation of Israel of this when they finally crossed the Jordan to enter into the land of Palestine after the death of Moses is what he said. Then Joshua assembled all the tribes of Israel at Shechem. He summoned the elders, the leaders, the judges, the officials of Israel, and they presented themselves before God. And Joshua said to all the people, listen to what he says. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Long ago... Long ago, your forefathers, including Terah, the father of Abraham and Nahor, Nahor was Abraham's brother, lived beyond the river and they worshipped other gods. But, I took your father Abraham from the land beyond the river and led him throughout Canaan and gave him many descendants. Descendants, I gave him Isaac, and to Isaac I gave him Jacob, and Esau. And I assigned the hill country to the Seir uh, country to Esau. But Jacob and his sons went down to Egypt. 
Joshua 24, verse 4 verses. It's part of their worship. The people acknowledge, Then you shall declare before the Lord your God, My father was a wandering Aramean, Aramean, and he went down into Egypt with a few people, and he lived there, and he became a great nation, powerful and numerous. But the Egyptians ill-treated us and made us suffer, putting us into hard labor. Deuteronomy 26, verse 5 and 6. And Ezekiel adds, This is what the Sovereign Lord says to Jerusalem. Your ancestry and birth were in the land of the Canaanites. Your father was an Amorite. Your mother was a Hittite. These are pagan nations, brethren. Not a believer among them. This was their heritage. You didn't start out with God. You started out as pagans. Gross pagans. Haters of God. He goes on. On the day you were born, your cord was not cut, speaking of the umbilical cord, nor were you washed with water to make you clean, nor were you rubbed with salt, which is a healing principle, nor were you wrapped in cloths. No one looked on you with pity. No one had compassion enough to do any of these things for you. Rather, you were thrown out into the open field, for on the day you were born, you were despised. What's this describing? Describing an aborted child. An unwanted child. That's what you were. Ezekiel 16 verses 3 through 5. No one wanted you. He just threw you out in the field. To die from exposure. By the way. That form of infanticide was practiced in Roman culture. You didn't want your child? Go laid on the walls of Rome. Exposed. Either the wolves will get it or the weather will get it. But in any case, you'll be done with the child. And these descriptions are meant to teach us that God's choice of Abraham and Sarah had nothing whatsoever to do with their personal righteousness, their personal obedience to God. Oh no. Thousand times no. They were born and reared in the Canaanite, Amorite, Hittite cultures. All three, pagan and opposed to the God of the Bible, just like the descendants of Nimrod and the people at the Tower of Babel. But I have to tell you, it wouldn't have been any different had God chosen some other couple from some other culture. No. Because all the nations had descended into the wicked idolatry that God had forbidden, but God had to start somewhere, right? So he just reached down from glory and he said to Abraham, chapter 12, verse 1, leave your country, leave your people, Leave your father's household and go to the land I will show you. 
and I will make you the great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. I can hear the protests. Oh, that's not fair. Wait a minute. God can't do that. What about all the other couples of that day? Don't they deserve a chance to be blessed by God? Brethren, that's just the point. Deserve has nothing to do with it. If you're going to talk deserve... Remember Paul's description of sinners who disown God. It's in Romans 1. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossip, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, boastful, they invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They're senseless, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve, here's what you deserve, death. Even though they know all that, they not only continue to do these very wicked things, but also approve of those who practice them. Romans 1, verse 29 through 32. You're going to talk deserve. Pretty scary. I'm thinking that your sin, like my sin, is listed somewhere in this catalog of vices so that the only thing you and I deserve from God is condemnation and hell's wrath. I'm not going to plead deserve before God. I'm going to keep my mouth shut. Except maybe to pray for mercy. And to pray for grace. Some will say, well, they're just, they, I mean, there just had to be something in Abram and Sarah that drew God's mercy to them, else... I mean, why would God single them out as the restart couple, if I could put it that way? Well, you're thinking like that of so many, which is skewed. You're thinking of earning God's favor through good deeds, but of what we have seen, there are no good deeds. It is as God has declared, there is no one who does good, not even one. Romans 3 verse 12, people don't like to hear that. Don't tell me that there's no good. I'm not telling you that. God is telling us that. And doesn't that paint a picture of helplessness and consequently of hopelessness? They go together. For all of us, from the standpoint of personal ingenuity and effort. Doesn't that throw us 
all on the mercy of God. What is mercy? I read the account of a case where a woman was convicted of stabbing her husband 27 times and then shooting him in the head just to make a final point. Wow. She was duly convicted of first degree murder and sent off to court for the sentencing part of her trial to determine if she would get the death penalty or a lifetime imprisonment. Think about that. What could she do? What could she do? She had been found guilty. The evidence was overwhelming. She even admitted to the crime. I did it. Her only recourse was to throw herself on the mercy of the court. What is mercy? Webster's Dictionary. Mercy implies compassion that forbears punishment even when justice demands it. Wow. And in a court case, it's up to the judge. There was no coercion that could apply, no bargaining chip, no pressures to bring to bear. No, it's all up to the judge. And the judge and jury is not compelled by any stretch of the imagination to comply with a plea for mercy. Listen now to God's response in the great courthouse of his decision concerning sinners who break his law. Here's what he says. I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. It does not therefore depend on man's desire or effort but on God's mercy. Romans 9 verse 15 and 16. This text is saying God's going to do what God's going to do and you and I will have no say in the matter. Here God just dropped my microphone. <laughs> hey Jared what happened to our holder here. Doesn't depend on man's, de man's desire. Depends on what God wants to do. Now if we have one thing in our favor it is the confidence expressed by the prophet Daniel in chapter 9 verse 9 of his book which says this and he's speaking the Lord our God is merciful and forgiving even though we 
have rebelled against him. Daniel 9, verse 9. Years ago, I put that verse on my refrigerator door just to remind me the Lord our God is merciful and forgiving even though we have rebelled against him. That introduces us to this couple of Abraham and Sarah. God was determined to break the chain of sinful progeny and descendants. One thing is true about all the genealogies found in scriptures, and that is this. Sinners produce sinners. No big light bulb there. <coughs> Even righteous people produce sinner babies, right? This is because we are born into sin. And if there is any righteousness, it becomes a reality after the fact, after the physical birth, when in time through the gospel call, repentance and faith, sinners are born anew. Paul explains this as being found in him, found in Jesus, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness comes from God and is by faith. Philippians 3 verse 9. He calls it the gift of righteousness in Romans 5.17. So if sinners begat sinners, like producing like, and both Abram and Sarah are sinners, idolaters like Terah, Abraham's father, how is it possible for God to break the chain of sinful progeny, sinners producing sinners, sinners producing sinner babies. How's that going to happen? Genesis 11 verse 30 says, Now Israel was barren. She had no children. Well, that's one way to do it, right? Sarah was barren. She had no children. Does anyone not know what it means to be barren? Then why add, she had no children? This is a double statement. And it's to hammer home the point, this new couple from which God, in bypassing the history of the nations, will not have to fear that they will be responsible for producing a culture of idolaters and God-haters, because Sarah can't have children. Well, that's one way of doing it. Her womb is reproductively dead. In our day, there are fertility clinics or in virtual fertilization available to help barren couples conceive, but none of this was available to Abraham and Sarah. Then halfway through their marriage, we read, now Sarah, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. Genesis 16, verse 1. Duh. Well, of course. And then two chapters. Th this is just like God's piling it on. Listen. Two chapters later, we read, Abraham and Sarah were already old and well advanced in years, and Sarah was 
past the age of childbearing. Genesis 16, verse 11. Boy, talk about rubbing it in. She's barren. She's without child. Now she's past the age of having children. I mean, Lord, give her a break. Is there enough grief here? And Paul in Romans makes a big deal about this. When he says, without weakening in his faith, he, Abraham, faced the fact that his body was as good as dead. Since he was about a hundred years old. Yeah, he was 99. That's pretty close to being a hundred years old. And that Sarah's womb was also dead. Romans 4 verse 19. So we got dead, dead. You know, brethren, sometimes God brings things into our lives which at face value are heartbreaking and painful. They are. Here was a couple who, as we shall see, in our next study, we're hanging on to God's promise. What was God's promise to them? Chapter 12, verse 2 of Genesis. I will make you into a great nation. <laughs> yeah, Lord, but uh, there's no baby in the cradle. And now... God, it just seems you've, you've waited too long. We just read that, humanly speaking, we're too old to have children. Their reproductive organs no longer function. God broke the chain of sinner begetting sinner. And this new spiritual race with a new spiritual head, in this case Abraham with Sarah, will not be responsible for continuing to produce wicked people. The chain of idolatry is broken biologically. Who's this child that God promised? And I said, wait a minute. At the 11th hour, when these two elderly saints were past their prime of having children, God did activate Sarah's womb. He did rejuvenate Abraham's body so that the two of them, without a fertility clinic, I might add, were able to conceive and produce a child he was Isaac. And as good a man as Isaac became, he was a sinner. He was a sinner. Just like his mom and dad. All this is very true. But Isaac was not the promised seed. He was a symbol of the promised seed 
in that his birth resulted from a miraculous work of God. But he was not the promised seed. Say, how do you know that? Listen to Paul explain the reality. Paul writes, the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. The scripture does not say, and to seeds, plural, meaning many people, which would be the world, but rather to your seed, singular, meaning one person who is Christ, not Isaac. Whoa, whoa. Galatians 3, verse 16. God made a promise to your seed, singular. Greek word here is sperma, from which we get the noun sperm, life-generating seed that produces offspring. Brethren, Jesus was that life-giving offspring, even more miraculously conceived by Mary, born without a sin nature, fixing his affection on Abraham and Sarah, setting their feet on the path to a land to salvation based on a promise. God made a promise. Are you on that path too? You can be put your full weight on that path by God's say so. Abraham did this and he was indeed one who became a great nation. So like him, put your faith in the promise of salvation. Chapter 12 of Genesis, all people on earth will be blessed through you, Abram. All people on earth will be blessed through you. Jesus is the universal Savior in this sense. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. There's no other Savior out there. John 1 verse 29. Peter put it this way very succinctly. Salvation is found in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. Acts 4 verse 12. Jesus is a must for your life. You think you're going to come to God in some other way. You're not. It's Jesus or no. If you want to be forgiven of your sins, if you want to be shown mercy, you're going to come through Jesus Christ. And you're going to come to Jesus Christ. Or you're not going to come at all. Now there is a coming wrath to be avoided and a saving grace to be grasped and held on to. Which is it going to be for you? By faith, I'm going to trust that Jesus took my sins upon himself on the cross. How could he do that? Well, for one thing, the important thing, he was himself personally sinless. Well, he didn't have to die. In fact, death had no claims on him whatsoever. 
death is the what? Wages of sin. So Christ is sinless. It had no claims on him. So he could willingly take upon himself the sin of his people, which is exactly what he did. God laid on him, says Paul, the sin of us all. But you have to trust that that was done for you and believe. And as a result of that, your life will be changed. And if it's not changed, then you're just playing games with God. I wouldn't play games with God if I were you. You're not God. You won't win. God will win. You will lose. Our Lord, we just pray that you will help us to see the truths of this. Help us to bow to the reality that we need a Savior. We need a sinless Savior because he's not dying for his own sins. He's dying for the sins of his people which God the Father places upon him. We're so thankful that you have come. The sinless sacrifice of God. You came. God laid on you the sins of your people. Who's your people? It's those who trust you and only you. I trust that my sins, O Lord, were placed upon Jesus on the cross as does every believer here this morning. But if we're not believers, then Lord, our sins are on our own ledger. Someone's going to pay for them and it isn't going to be Jesus if we have no faith in him and don't repent of our sin. It's not automatic. There's nothing automatic. We must have faith, a believing faith. We must plead with God, God the Father, to forgive our sins on the merit of Jesus. I pray that we'll pray that way. Help us to trust Jesus, not ourselves, not our alleged own goodness, because we aren't good. The Bible says there's none good but God. That's what I need, the good God dying paying for my sins. Thank you, Lord. All we can say is thank you, thank you, thank you. Amen. Our closing hymn is from Trinity. And that is 468 in the red hymn. 468 in Trinity. Stand as we sing. I'm going to sit. You stay here. <laughs> uh,
sufficiency of Christ of Christianity they say oh no 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 that's not enough got to do this and that give to the church so much money do penance do prayer vigils do no 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 scripture teaches us that Christ is the sufficient savior he does it all or he doesn't do it any of it. And if he does it all, are you really going to improve upon what Christ has done? I wonder if people really thought that one through. You're going to improve upon what the sinless Son of God did and accomplished. There's an arrogance in that. Think about it. It's like this. If something's perfect, What do you do to improve it? If it's perfect and you do anything, you've spoiled it. And that's exactly what has happened with all the religions of the world. They spoiled the truth of the gospel. Oh yeah, Jesus had to die. Yes, we believe that. But then they bring out the penance and the prayers and the, all the other things that we have to do to contribute. Brethren, even the faith that we have in the work of Christ is the gift of God. Repentance that helps us turn away from our sin is a gift of God. The fact that God gives it is his grace and his mercy. And i got to say, not everybody receives his repentance and his gift of because they're prideful and they're saying I have to contribute my part it can't be this simple let me tell you there's nothing simple about salvation nothing simple about the cross it began in eternity past and God's been working his plan through the centuries in the fullness of time God sent forth his son. Didn't happen. Boom. In Genesis. Our Lord, you have been working your plan and it has been accomplished. There is salvation in no one else, says Peter, except in the Lord Jesus Christ. But boy, we're going to try. We don't want to, want to believe the scriptures. We don't want to believe that Jesus did pay it all. And that there's nothing left on the ledger account to be paid for. And if we're going to be saved at all, we're going to trust that Christ paid it all. And that the Father laid on him the iniquity of us all, the scripture says. But if I don't believe that, if I don't trust that, if I still think i got to make my contribution... Now I'm calling God a liar and I'm saying that his work is incomplete. Incomplete. 
Lord, please take that skepticism away from us. Help us to plead the mercy of God. Help us to plead for your grace and to be thankful that it's available to us through the person of Jesus. In whose name we pray with thanksgiving. Amen. Amen. We are dismissed. Thank you.